Thank you for that. You're kind. You're, you're kind. So we're going to start, uh, we started the fall, and uh, I want to talk about our mission, and that might sound like a boring term to you, but if, if you're in business, uh, you know that the companies uh, put a lot of energy into communicating what their mission is, you know, their core business uh, what they're about, and then, and then you know, figuring it out and staying focused on it, but also communicating it, because they know that when they have a sense of who their mission is, what their mission is, and they communicate it, that the, their employees align with it, uh, that they can, it can focus their strategy. I mean, there's just benefit after benefit after benefit. And sometimes in, in church, and I think frequently here, uh, it, we, we have a sense of our compass, our mission, but we don't communicate it very well. And so we want to take a few weeks and talk about that, our, our mission and our vision and our values and priorities for the next few weeks, uh, kind of sandwiched around the uh, baptism. Now, uh, there are some great nonprofits out there, uh, like churches like ours, I want to give you the mission statement of, of just a couple of these nonprofits, and you know, some of them you know, some of them you don't. There's a nonprofit organization called the Wounded Warrior Project. Who's heard of that? Okay, good. That's pretty well known now. And the Wounded Warrior Project, their mission statement is to honor and empower wounded warriors. Seems like they're pretty successful at that. I think that's what people would, most people who know anything about wounded warriors would say, yeah, I think that's what I understand they do. There's another uh, social service organization called Oxfam. Anybody heard of Oxfam? That's a little more obscure, a few people. Yeah, there's a, a good liberal over there that knows about Oxfam. <laughs> Thank you, our token. Uh, Oxfam, their mission statement, which it's a wonderful organization too. I'm, I'm just kidding about that. Uh, their mission statement is to create lasting solutions to poverty, hungry, and social injustice. Pretty, those are pretty big tasks. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic, uh, lo and behold, it is a nonprofit. I know that that, that stretches the definition of nonprofit some, somewhat, but uh, their mission statement is to provide better care for the sick, to investigate into their problems or research, and to further the education of those who serve, which those are three pretty important priorities, and so they're really focused on them. Well, for a church, people have all kinds of, I mean, all over the board ideas about what, what's the purpose of a church or what's the mission of a church. And what I want to do today is, I think it probably this is something you intuitively already grasp, but maybe it hasn't been spelled out explicitly to you. This is what the vineyard here, our vineyard is about. And I think it's probably generically what every church that exists is about, whether they they phrase it this way or not. But our mission as a church, and any church's mission, is, is interconnected and linked with the mission of Jesus. And so I think sometimes people don't know what the mission of Jesus is. Uh, some people have sort of dumbed it down so much that they've lost sight of what it really is because they take little parts of Jesus' mission that are, that are not unimportant, but they elevate it to uh, the focus of his, of his mission, and it's not, and they, that gets it out of balance, and John Wimber used to tell us, uh, we want to see our movement major on the majors, and not major on the minors, uh, 
and not take what's minor and make it major. Because if you ever get sideways with churches and church leadership, that's often one of the things that happens is we take things that are minor and we make them major. And then we take things that are major and we make them minor. And when that happens, it just causes problems. I won't give you, you many of you right now, uh, examples are coming to mind. So there's a story, one of many, many, that we could look at that describes Jesus' mission. So what I want you to do is I want you to understand his mission, and I think it's pretty easy to see then what our mission is. But if you have a Bible with you, uh, open the Bible up in the New Testament to Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the chair seat's in front of you. There are paperback Bibles. They look like this. And uh, let's see, Luke 5 is page 714. We're just going to read the first 11 verses there. Uh, Sorry if you're in the front row, you're out of luck. So we'll read this passage, and then we'll unpack it and try to apply it. And uh, so let's pray for a moment. Father, as we read your word, uh, we ask that it would speak to us as if it's, it's coming from your very lips. And we know this is your word, and it's full of life for us. It's full of wisdom, and, and that you use it in our lives. And uh, so we open our hearts up to you today, and we ask for grace to open them as wide as we can open them to hear everything you have to say to us and to receive everything you have for us. In Christ's name, amen. So, Luke chapter 5, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. So fishing was a really, really big enterprise around the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, there's a bunch of boats there. And he sees two in particular, and, and they're, they're the boats that are owned by Peter and his family. Uh, he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, sometimes people have this idea of Jesus and his ministry, uh, you know, uh, preaching to these quaint little crowds like we have here today. But if you read Josephus, uh, who was a Jewish historian uh, who who lived immediately after the time of Christ, he said this, the area of Galilee, which was the northern part of Israel, there was over 300 villages there, and not one of the village ha- villages had less than 3,000 people in it. So he said it was an incredibly densely populated area. That's several million people packed into, if you know Israel, if you, the northern part of Israel, when it says that the crowds of people were pressing into Jesus and so he got in the boat, do you understand what, what Jesus is facing? They're just people are packed together and they want to hear what he has to say because he's doing miracles, he's teaching, he's, he's doing things that they'd heard about in the Old Testament and you know, the, what the law and the prophets had taught. He was showing them things that, that got everyone's attention. And so he, he creates this little uh, platform to speak from, and the shore becomes a, a little amphitheater. So it says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, and Simon had some of his, his uh, crew in the boat with him, he said, put out in the deeper water and let down the nets for a catch. So Simon said, well, Master, you know, we've heard, worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. Now, 
Simon apparently was, you know, as, as the story goes on, you're going to see he's not, uh, you know, a pious, observant Jew, but he has enough uh, spiritual indoctrination. As you know, when you're raised in Israel, you're going to hear uh, through everything around you uh, the God's covenant with Israel. But he clearly is not uh, a, a faithful synagogue goer or that kind of a person. Uh, and, but he's open interestingly, to what Jesus suggests that he does. And when people are, are moving in their spiritual life, when they move along, you start antagonistic to the idea of Jesus. And then as you make movement, you just become skeptical. And then you make a little more movement, and you just sort of become agnostic or indifferent. And then you get this point, which I, thought, I think was where Peter was at, is he was beginning to be open. He wasn't convinced that you know, Jesus was who he said he was, but he certainly was an, you know, an, uh, an arresting character. And so he just figured, what do I have to lose? So he, he goes back out in the deep water, which, uh, again, historical sources tell us that's not where you fished in the lake. You fished closer to the shore, and you fished at night, because then, during the day, the water heated up and the fish went deeper, and they didn't have nets like modern fishing uh, enterprises have a day that go down hundreds of feet. And they're just in boats that are 25, 35 feet long, wooden boats. And they're throwing these nets out, just like you've seen if you've seen, you know, in, uh, in certain places in the world where people feel, still fish by hand like that in small boats. So he, he's, he's open, which is in itself is a little lesson that a lot of times, even if you don't have the answers, and you may be here, and you don't, you know, you're trying to figure out where Jesus fits in your life. If you, uh, 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 Dallas Willard, he's a, he used to be the, the chair of the philosophy department at the University of Southern California. He's a famous Christian, the vineyard guy. He said, the best way to figure out if God is real is to act like he is real and see what happens. Isn't that an interesting way of looking at it? Only a philosopher would look at it that way. And so Peter took a chance. And it says when he did that, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Their, their nets began to rip. And as they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. So they're overwhelmed by this. This is amazing because this rabbi, a carpenter, you know, a landlubber, uh, suggests something and they catch more fish than their boats have capacity for, right? And it says that Simon Peter, when he saw this, he fell on his knees at Jesus' feet and he said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And, and Simon, this is, this is historically uh, evidence that Simon had a, a, a flourishing little business here. This was not like a, one guy in a little rowboat out, you know, in a fishing line. This was a commercial fishing business that was, that, that was you know, moderately sized. And so he was probably somewhat of a successful businessman. He was probably a person, you know, that had some worth in their family. Uh, they had several boats. They had hired workers. So Jesus said, uh, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. 
And so they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, what this story moves through sort of three points. I want to look at each one of them, just kind of break it down a little bit. Jesus' mission, and this reveals his mission in this way. First, you see Jesus preaching to the crowds. And what he's preaching, it says, is God's word, which is uh, a catchphrase for he's talking about the kingdom of God that they've all been waiting for, where God's going to come and break into the world, and he's going to bring his kingly reign and salvation in to wherever there's need. Wherever there's injustice, he's going to bring justice. Wherever there's unrighteousness, he's going to pour out righteousness. Wherever uh, God's presence is not felt, God's presence is going to flood into the darkest places. The the dead are going to rise, and the the lame are going to walk, and the blind are going to see, and that's exactly what was happening everywhere Jesus went. And so what Jesus proclaimed when he said the kingdom of God's here, he said everything you've been talking about, it comes into the world through me. It's not coming in through a set of of beliefs or rituals or a place, a, a sacred place, like they had become accustomed to at the temple. Jesus said the kingdom of God that, that all those things have some association with and they point to, point to me. And so he's preaching that word to them. And now that's gripping because that was not exactly what they expected. Even though they knew the Messiah was going to come and he was going to be somehow the Lord's servant and human, Jesus still came from a part of the country like up here where they were all living that was like the bad side of town. There wasn't a whole lot of prophets that came from there. And they really weren't thinking the Messiah was going to come from there either. Jesus really broke all kinds of expectations. He, he challenged them in a lot of ways. And then he calls them to go fishing. And then after they go fishing, or while they go fishing, he makes God real to them. And then he calls for a response from them. So when, when God speaks he'll, to us today, he speaks to us and he wants to reveal himself to us through through his son. And he wants him to become, he wants to become real to us. This is something I say a lot, and I know you may think I overuse this idea, but it's really a crucial idea. It, it, it's one of the most crucial ideas you can get for your spiritual life. Is There's a lot of things that are true that Christians believe, but there's far less things that are real to them. Would you agree with me? And when the truth becomes real is when things happen in our lives, isn't it? And so Jesus had preached and preached and preached, and Jesus had this method that John Wimber used to call show and tell. Just like in grade school. I remember going to, uh, to class in elementary school, and we were told to bring something uh, and, you know, some, uh, like a toy you liked or a model that you'd made or something and explain it. And it was, you know, it was, they had purposes for that. But what Jesus did is he didn't just tell them about the kingdom of God, he demonstrated it. So he made it real to them. It wasn't just an idea of pie in the sky because he was bringing it to them. That's the point, okay? So his mission the heart of his mission was to make God real, that we experience God personally and directly through a person, 
in a relationship with the person. Which, you know, now, because here in the West, we've heard uh, Christian ideas for so long, that, that isn't such a, you know, stretch to hear. But it, it was for Jews in the way that Jesus was saying it. Because even though they knew the Messiah was someone special, this guy seemed so ordinary. But he also seemed special beyond what they even had a category for. Special in a way that only the God of their fathers was. But how could the God of their fathers be flesh and blood? They, you know, they, they were trying to pull those two things together, and it challenged them. The church has always struggled with that. This space between God and flesh and blood is a mystery that you're never going to fully resolve. There's a mystery there. Like uh, In the social sciences, one of the, the big uh, mysteries that, that, that's often discussed is what are human beings? And I don't know if you've ever been in college and, and, uh, and read much on this, but there is, a, there is a huge amount of study and discussion and debate about what is it to be a human being. There's something mysterious. People try to say, well, it's, we, it's because we have a will and consciousness and all kinds of things that are true, but there's more than that. And so Jesus was more than that. He is more than that. And so they were encountering him, and it was like whew, blowing their minds. And so when they went fishing with him, uh, Jesus takes them to this miraculous catch of fish, and he, he makes the kingdom of God real to them, okay? And, and more importantly, what he does is he makes God the Father real. And what happens is, when they saw the catch of fish, I'll, I'll, I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question. Do you think it was because of the miracle of the catch of fish, like that God could catch a whole bunch of fish? Or do you think it was something that, and so, that, that, that revealed something about God, not just that like he had big biceps? They believed he was powerful, but there was something about him being powerful to them that was the game changer. Because what they experienced was God, and what we, we, this term we use, God is holy. Peter, when he saw this, and he was amazed, and all, all of his you know, fellow uh, partners, they were all amazed because they had worked hard and they couldn't catch any fish. And Jesus showed them where the fish were and they caught so much their boat was going to sink. And what that did was that like took the curtain that separates humanity and God and just went like this. And when it went like this for a moment and closed, they just they fell back on the ground. They were overwhelmed. Peter fell on his face because what happens when you encounter God's holiness, what they experienced was God was being inexplicably good to them. Peter felt unworthy. He felt guilty. He felt like, I don't deserve anything from God at that moment. Now, maybe he had fancied himself as sort of a pious person, right? I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, almost everybody will tell you they're good enough to get into heaven, as the saying goes, right? I think if, if, if I don't know if they used that kind of language back then, but I'm, I'm sure if you'd asked Peter, he would say, yeah, I'm a pretty good guy, you know, 
I'm, I'm Jewish, you know, I'm circumcised, and, and uh, you know, my dad's dad, dad used to go to a synagogue, <laughs> and uh, didn't that, like, give me some, something, and, and I, you know, I work hard, and, and I, you know, I give some money to the poor, and, and we all have this sense of what, what God's looking for, and nobody really wants to say they don't measure up, but when that curtain opens, and, 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 the, and God reveals himself through Jesus to you, you just are overwhelmed. And goodness is holiness, and holiness is goodness. Goodness is an attribute of holiness. To be holy is to be different. The way the Bible uses it, it means God's different than us. We're like him, but he's like us in a way that we are not like that nobody has ever been like and they got a taste of God's goodness his generosity to them that they knew they didn't deserve and goodness is scary when you experience it and what it does is in in the book of Romans Paul is giving this long exposition about the gospel and and he says you know what gets people to change their minds about God what causes them to repent is God's goodness. Romans 2.4 says God's goodness makes people fall on their knees and say, I'm a sinner. I, oh God, I'm, I'm utterly unlike you. Now, other aspects of God's character can also strike that same, have that same impact in our lives. Do you understand? But God's goodness came to Peter and, and his companions, and they were hammered by it. And they saw themselves, because when, when we see God in, in the light of his nature, which we see him through Jesus, if we're honestly encountering him from a place of openness like Peter was, he saw himself. See, God's light in John 1, it says, Jesus is the light which comes into the world and enlightens everyone. And so they saw themselves, and they weren't generous like that. You know, they work, have you ever had a really hard day at work? I mean, one of those days like that you just go, this makes me want to quit this job. <laughs> okay, do you come home and just spill out joy and affirmation and gratitude and kindness to everyone that you run into? Right? I mean, that's a rhetorical question. I know you don't. Right? When you have one of those days where the, it's, the work has just hammered you like the night before for them, probably the worst came out in the middle of a night of fishing all night and not catching anything. And the next day, they meet Jesus. And who knows how they were treating each other? Who knows, you know, who was getting blamed for what and why this isn't happening and we didn't get the boat out in time and, you know, we had that leak, we had to go back in, you forgot the tackle, you forgot the lunch, you forgot the water, you forgot the salt for the fish. No wonder we didn't catch any fish, you know, you're all fired. Peter's probably, you know, he's probably in that kind of mindset and then God shows up in his son Jesus and boom, he sees him and he repents. He falls on his knees and says, Whatever confusion I've had about my moral condition, it's, it's, it's gone. I see myself in light of your goodness. Goodness. And so 
Peter falls down right there, and I think like a lot of people, you know, we have this God-shaped hole in us, which, you know, is, is, a, is a well-used phrase in church, but what it means is that we're made in God's image, we're made for a relationship with him, and what Peter realized was he was alienated from God, and the thing about people like Peter and people like a lot of us, when you have a, a middle class, upper middle class, upper class kind of a life, which they probably did, you can buy into the idea that, that things, that material things can fill that hole. And if you have enough of those things, you'll be satisfied. And it'll, it'll, it'll make up for that gnawing inside you. Well, I think Peter realized he got all the stuff he wanted, he could have dreamed of. And I think it, it, it's possible that at that moment he also realized that, yeah, this stuff I've been, I've been trying to hold on to, it, it doesn't give me what I want. It, in fact, it's left me empty. Chasing after material things will leave you empty. Now, sometimes people chase after material things and they go through that, and then they realize, oh, but material things will let me pursue pleasure. I can, I can just pursue pleasure. Because pleasure feels good. That's why they call it pleasure. And when you chase it, it, it satisfies you for a while, but there's this weird inversion that happens when you chase pleasure. Is Here's what happens. You become its servant. It begins to control your life. Isn't that what alcoholism is? Isn't that what sex addiction is? Isn't that what workaholism is? Isn't that what all kinds of disorders that control us are? We started out pursuing something that seemed good to meet a legitimate need in our life, but it, it, it's not made to meet that need. But we choose to live life on our own terms, which is the essence of what sin is. It's, it's I'm my own boss. Well, Peter might have done that. Peter might have, Peter might have been a pious man. But the, uh, when, when, ple- when, when things and pleasure run out, sometimes people turn to religion. But the thing about religion is religion will poison everything it touches. Because what religion is based on is the effort that we make to become someone that can please God and that can gain his approval and that can you know, become the kind of person that is respected uh, morally. But the problem with that is what that does to our hearts is it makes us proud. And religion poisons us by making us think we're better than people who can't measure up to whatever standard we've set for ourselves that we live up to. And then religion divides and religion causes this, these fractures in, in homes and relationships. It doesn't heal. But faith in Jesus, if, if that's what a person has and Peter didn't have, faith in Jesus makes you humble because a relationship with God comes as a gift of his grace. It doesn't come because of anything you do. And so it doesn't make you look at another person who didn't even believe what you believe, who might believe something the exact opposite and feel like you're better than them it doesn't make you do that if you really follow Jesus because you know you're probably not better than them. In fact, there's probably ways that they're morally superior to you. Even though you have faith in Jesus, they treat their kids better than you treat yours. They work harder than you work. 
They do all kinds of things that you don't do. And you're a follower of Jesus because you know it's not your own effort that earns you anything. And maybe Peter tried that. And, and maybe at this point, he sees when he encounters Jesus, whatever idea of my own piety I had, I, I, it doesn't measure up at all. There's something I see in this man, this teacher, this prophet, whatever he is. I, you know, he didn't, I don't think he had a term for who Jesus was at that moment. He just goes, he's blown my mind completely. And I, I just feel exposed. And when you meet God... At some point in your life, if it's genuine, you will feel exposed like that. Now, if you're really following Jesus, that will probably happen to you cyclically throughout your life. Not because each time you're being born again, again and again and again, but when the curtain opens, so to speak, and the light shines through, you still see what part of your life isn't conformed to the image of Jesus, and you still feel unworthy in God's presence. Not that you're not loved, but unworthy. And it shakes you. In fact, there are times, I remember praying for uh, Doug and Elise Carl, and I were praying for a guy who was very skeptical. He was a Christian, very skeptical guy. And as we were praying for him about uh, a particular injury he had, the presence of God came on him. He just collapsed on the ground and couldn't move. And he, I don't know how long he lay there, but for a while, but he said, as uh, people were praying for him, that they were praying for things that nobody else could know, and it scared him, and he said, God, all the things, that he was, he was a very, he's a very bright man, real, a real godly man, but he had God in a box, but it, whatever he knew about God in that box began to be real to him, and he said there was a point where he just... It was so real. God was so real. He started becoming afraid and he just collapsed on the ground. And that's what it's like. It, it, I don't mean you're not a Christian if you haven't had that experience because he already was a follower of Jesus, a real, committed, sincere follower, leader. But God's bigger than, than you know, our little box. I mean, you can, have, you can, you can have the biggest box you can, you can draw and that's not anywhere near big enough to encompass God. We see Jesus as this person who, when he shows up, it always amazes people. It always blows people's doors off. So, show and tell. (laughs) Jesus said, later on in Luke, uh, in a situation where he was, he was uh, associating with a person who was kind of a notorious character, they asked him, the crowds who saw him welcome this really notorious guy uh, in the town of Jericho, they said, what on earth are you doing hanging around him? I mean, okay, we know you hang around us, you know, kind of middle class types, but this guy is rich and he's a, you know, he's a traitor to his people, blah, 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 and he's not, he's not a pious person in any way. And Jesus said, my mission is to seek and to save those that are lost, those that are alienated from God, those who, when they get in God's presence, like you guys, are undone. I came so that you might be able to stand in God's presence and have him change you, and you could enjoy him, and you could become more like him, and you could... You could make that real to other people. So Jesus did that. He said, that's my mission. 
That's my mission. His mission is, was to make God real to people so that, that those that were lost, he would seek them and save them. They could come into a relationship with God through him. And everybody he met who wanted to come into a relationship with God, who was willing to say, I can't do it on my own. Jesus, I trust in you and your word and what you're going to do for me. Every one of them experienced God becoming real to them in a way that they'd heard about. And they'd, always, they'd only imagined that, that special people could enjoy. Jesus took that relationship that many Jews thought was only possible for prophets and priests and kings and real pious people. And Jesus said, no, it's for the worst people. Because what I'm doing is going to make it possible for even the worst people to know God and to become like him more and more and more, which in itself is the greatest miracle of all. And so this miracle of, of the catch of fish showed God's goodness that, that spoke to them in a way that made them want more. So, but what Jesus always does is he always calls for a response. And so he said to them, uh, when, when Peter fell on his face and said, get away from me, Lord, I can't, I can't take it, you know, I don't deserve to be around you, I don't deserve you to be so kind to me. Jesus said to him, don't be afraid. And I think when he said that, he saw Peter's heart. Peter had a heart that was now not just open, but seeking, but, but afraid, and he knew how holy God was now, and he knew he was in no shape to have any contact with Jesus. But what Jesus was saying was, what I say to you will make you qualified for this relationship. What I say and what I do is what makes it happen. And he said, and, and furthermore, join me in my mission. But there's a response there. So, maybe you're here today, and... Maybe you've been a religious person, but you haven't had real faith because in your understanding, what you've thought is, I need to be a good person, which is certainly true. God wants us to be good people, but what you thought was mistakenly that, that God wanted you to try to be the best person you could be, and if you could measure up, then he would welcome you because that's how, because God's good. He's holy, right? And you've got to be something like him to be friends with him. That's, that's the way it works in the world. It must work that way in spiritually, in spiritual matters, in relationship with God. But it doesn't. It works the way we see here where Jesus is, he's fishing. And when he wa- was standing on that beach and the crowds were pressing in, he saw two boats and he picked those boats out of all the other boats because he was seeking after Peter and these other men because God was pursuing them. And after Jesus revealed himself and revealed God and made this invitation, they had to respond. So maybe you're here today and maybe your boat is on the shore here and Jesus has gotten into it, and he has, it, maybe it's something I've said here, you realize, wow, God is really different than what I used to think. He's, he's way holier. He's not so easy to please. Like, I can do a few things, and that's cool with God. That, that my life doesn't in any way please him, but that isn't going to stop things, because Jesus pleased him, and if I put my trust in Jesus, then God will accept me, and I can have God's life in me, 
and I can know him personally, intimately, and he'll be real to me. If you're here today, you need to respond to that invitation. You know, a lot of times in churches, what we say is, if that's you, raise your hand. And if that's you, uh, once you've raised your hand, stand up and, and pray. Because in the Bible, it says, if you believe in your heart, and then you confess openly that Jesus is Lord, that you want to follow him, that you want to experience God's grace through him, then you will experience forgiveness and salvation. That's this word. It, it's a real big word. It means a lot of wonderful things. But one of the things it means, which is probably the most important thing, is that our sins are forgiven and that we're not alienated from God anymore, that we can have this reconciled, intimate relationship. I said it at a wedding yesterday, I uh, performed, because I, I said it I, I, uh, at, uh, whose wedding was it? Oh, <laughs> senior moment. <laughs> No, Brandon and Jessica were married a, uh, about a month and a half ago, and I just wanted to say something about, they, they said, yeah, say something, whatever you want, just don't go too long, John, you know how you, yeah. <laughs> and so I thought, that's really hard, you know, you're, it's hard to do that, but I thought, okay, what does it say? I said, you know, when you, when, you, when you see a wedding, when you're at a wedding, God's speaking to you, because he's telling you what a relationship with him is like, why you need it, and how to, to get it. And so don't ever think that God hasn't spoken to you because he's, every time you see a wedding, you see what a relationship with God's meant to be like, the love between a husband, and a, you know, a man and a woman, and the, the intimacy and the vulnerability and the trust that it's based on. And then you need it because, you know, two are better than one. But as the Bible also says, but, but two are not enough. Two are better than one, but two are not enough. There's this threefold chord that Ecclesiastes speaks of. It's sort of alluding to the fact that, you know, two people can, can, can experience some level of the dissipation of loneliness, but not ultimately. And there was a, a, a Russian writer named uh, Anton Chekhov, and he said, if you don't like loneliness, don't get married. <laughs> Anybody, I, I, can, I can tell you, I'm married to a wonderful person. And she'll tell you what loneliness is like. Because uh, being, no matter how much you love someone, we're not, that, that God-shaped hole can't be filled by a spouse. No person can do it except the person of Jesus. And so God wants that kind of intimacy with us. But, but we, we, we get it through this public declaration. We come out and say, I need it. I need Jesus. I need to follow him. Uh, the only way I'm going to experience that is through him. And so if you're here today, before we finish, I'm going to ask you to pray and do that. Because I think there's a couple of people here. You know, most of the folks that gather on Sunday mornings are followers of Jesus already. But, I, I, you know, always, God always draws people in. And he, he, I think there's a couple people here he's speaking to. Uh, so our mission then comes from the mission of Jesus. It's really simple. Our mission, I'll name it for you. Go back in the boat with me for a second. Okay, think of those 25, 35-foot wooden boats. You're, put yourself in Peter's position. You know, you're pulling all these fish in, and as you keep pulling the net in, more and more fish come in. Your boat's sinking lower in the water. You call the other boat in. They come. Their boat starts sinking, and then it hits you. It's been dawning on you, but it hits you because you've just been distracted by pulling the fish in. Then all of a sudden you realize, oh, this is God. 
this is God. Oh no, it's like what I heard. And, you know, and then you just, you're overwhelmed because you feel like you're such a miserable person. I don't deserve this. And then Jesus says what he says to you and that fear goes away. He says, fear not. And it's like and you receive those words because you, you don't have Jesus figured out at that point. You might not have him, you're not going to have him totally figured out today. But what you see in Jesus is he is from God and I'm going to follow him and I'm going to surrender to him. And I'm going to live for him. And whatever he says goes. I mean, it's, that's, everybody kind of comes at that place. Because there's, there's so much more to learn the rest of your life. But that's all you need. So know that you can't, you can't know God without Jesus. And if you want to know Jesus and follow him, you're going to know God. And so Peter does that. And all of his companions with him, yes, yes, that's what we want. And so that fear goes away. And then surprise of all surprises, Jesus says, now I want you to join me in this mission. And it doesn't say it in the text. But I think it wouldn't be hard to imagine them looking back at the shore and seeing all those people and realizing they were just like they were a couple of minutes ago and seeing that that's why Jesus was speaking to them because he's seeking them and he's calling us to join him in that mission. That this is the mission of God. God's kingdom is coming to these people and he wants us to be a part of it which that absolutely locked in with everything the Jews knew about themselves, that they were a chosen people. But a lot of the people like Peter and like us, we don't think we're qualified to be a part of such a sort of an elite group of people to represent God. But Jesus went to the most unlikely people and he chose them to be the most important people to represent him that there were. And it took those people a while to really get it. He really wants me to be in this mission with him. I'm going to represent him. And so I think, as you're sitting in this boat, you just, like when I talked about materialists, I know that every one of us here know people who are trapped in the lie of materialism. Every one of us know people who are trapped in the lie of hedonism and pleasure-seeking. And, and, and some of them, they're painfully enslaved to it. Every one of us know people who are trapped in dead religion, and it's poisoning them. It's turned their kids against God. It's turned their neighbors against God. I remember when you guys you know when we planted the Plain City Church and sent a bunch of people over there. When M Mike and Linda, who lead the church there, used to be on our staff here, when they came to our church, they were at the end of themselves. They had been involved in this weird religious group that had just beaten the, pardon the word, hell out of them. And Sheila and other people prayed for them, and they just soaked in worship here. And this group had told Mike, you're not a leader, you'll never be a leader, you know, we don't even, we're not even going to let you lead worship, we don't want you leading groups, we don't want you teaching people. And I remember hearing that from him, and I just, I started crying, I said, Mike, dude, you're a leader, that's a lie. That is not what God, God, you know, you're a shepherd. You have a shepherd's heart. And they wept and, and God just restored them. And their kids, one by one, came back to the Lord. And, and they'd been so hurt by dead religion. You guys know people, all of us know people who are just burned out from religion, right? Not your heads. 
And, and I just want you to make me feel good. <laughs> I'm a pastor, and I know a lot of people are burned out from religion. Some of them are here. But we want to be a people in a place who help them see that Jesus is real. Our mission is to follow Jesus because he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. We want to follow Jesus and we want to make him real to other people. Show and tell. We don't just want to give them religious platitudes. We want them to encounter Jesus through our average lives, our broken lives. You know, last week we prayed for somebody up here and they got healed. And at least they said they felt a lot better. And uh, I don't know, you know what that means, but they were a satisfied customer. Uh, <laughs> and when someone says, my sins are forgiven, uh, there was a lady who was here last couple of weeks who isn't here today, who was, I think, the first person we led to Christ in, in Columbus when we moved here back in the early 1980s. And, she, and, and Kathy and I, uh, Kathy met her downtown. We used to go and do street evangelism. And, and this lady had, uh, she's a homeless lady, and she had all of her bags, all of her stuff in a couple of bags. And she never, ever looked up from the ground. If she would talk to you at all, she never looked you in the eye. And so I come home one day, and this lady's living with us. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy disfigured you know, we can't leave this lady out in the street. She'd been abused, all kinds of bad stuff had happened to her. And I think, what was it, like a month and a half, she never said a word to me. I would talk to her and try to, you know, be kind to her and engage her, and she would just walk around the house. She was just so broken, so broken by life. Just life had just kicked her around. And you know, she was here last week. She goes to Vineyard Columbus. She lives over in that part of town. She's such a different person. She's been through school now. She's had a career. She's retired now. She's a little older. But she is, she's talking to me. She's looking me in the eye and just chatting. And I'm just looking at her and thinking, wow. You know, this lady was as wrecked a person as I, I, I've ever met. And she's fully engaged and you know, it's just a normal person you would have never known. Well, maybe a little bit. There's some little uh, idiosyncrasies, but because you can't get that beat up and not leave some scars. But we want to be a people who introduce people like Charlotte to Jesus. Because what the difference was, we made Jesus real to her. That's it. And I can't make Jesus real to anybody. But if I follow Jesus... He will change me, and they're more likely to see that he's real because I'm following him. But that mission part, this is the part you have to walk away with, and we're going to close here. Most believers never get this. That we, we preach this sort of, uh, again, barcode faith where we're just trying to get people into heaven. We're just trying to get their ticket punched. So you can go to heaven. And that's such a, uh, is that true? Yes. But that is, that's the lowest common denominator of what salvation is. Because God's trying to get heaven here into our lives and make it real. He wants to see Jesus formed in people and in a community so the world can see what that age is like. That it's an age of generosity. It's an age of justice. That it's an age of, of love 
Uh, it's, it's an age of people that listen to one another and aren't, you know, trapped in their technology. It's, it's an age where uh, people who don't have families are brought into families because they're cared about, because they're human and made in the image of God, no matter what else they are. Like the Muslims that come every week or, or every month that, that uh, Jay and Maggie help feed, they say to us, do you guys know we're Muslims? <laughs> you know, you're helping us and you're kind to us, and our faith tells us we're not supposed to help anybody outside of our faith. We wouldn't help you. Why are you helping us? And we, you know, it, it's, it's, you have this conversation. It, well, it's because of Jesus. You share the gospel and, and you know, nobody's, it hasn't clicked with anybody yet. They just go, that's really strange. You know, it, it's really, I don't get that because they don't have a reference point. But what we're saying is we want to make Jesus real to you. At some point, it's, they're going to have a moment and that it's going gonna, it's gonna to shine through and it's going to impact them. So our mission, the mission at the Vineyard, is we want to follow Jesus and make him real to others. Now we'll talk about the vision, what that looks like down the line. If we do that, what, what that will produce as a community. But that's simple. That's the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you always. So we're joining Jesus in his mission. He's still on that he's doing through the Holy Spirit, through the church. He's still working to seek and save the lost. And a lot of Christians don't get that because they just think, I'm just trying to get to heaven. No. He's trying to see heaven break into the world around us through us, through ordinary people like us. So each week, in the next couple of weeks, I want to try to build on this. And I want you to just chew on that some. Uh, last week, we had a whole week of worship and ministry. You know, we soaked. We got a lot of stuff going. Uh, I just want you to take this truth, this simple truth. Go back over this passage and just say, God, you know, help me to see. Because it says that they left everything to follow Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's supposed to literally leave their vocation. Because only a few people change vocations and become pastors and full-time Christian workers and missionaries. Almost everybody doesn't leave their vocation. You're not called to leave your vocation. What you're called to leave is making your work the center of your life or anything else the center of your life. You're supposed to reorganize your life like they did around Jesus and his mission. That it's not just supposed to be something, if I have some time in my really busy life, I'll fit Jesus and his mission in there. That's what constitutes what a lot of Christians think the Christian life is. And that's not. You see right off the bat here, I was taught this as a young believer. You need to be in the mission. And so I, I got it right off the bat. And I've told you guys before, you know, the people that disciple me, one of my friends, the, the guys that disciple me, he, came, he graduated medical school, came up to Columbus, uh, was checking out a, a residency program here. And he told me, he and his wife, he said, uh, his name's Brian, uh, he had dinner with Kathy and I, and he said, John, you know, back in our discipleship meetings in our church, you know, when your name would come up, you're the guy that we least even thought, believe, would stay a Christian. <laughs> We're kind of surprised that you became a pastor. <laughs> and he said, I, that's a compliment. And I said, okay. <laughs> All right. But what they did teach me was the right thing, which is this isn't like supposed to be an option. We're supposed to reorganize our lives. We're supposed to leave everything 
and the way we conceive of our lives and allow Jesus to reorganize it around himself and his mission. And what you'll find is, for most people, they enjoy their jobs like they never did before. They enjoy all the things that, that God blesses us with, but those things get put in their right priority. And, and they don't consume things, and they don't undermine our families, and you know we get corrected and balanced. But Jesus becomes the organizing element instead of you know, our own willpower or the pressures of the society around us. So let's stand for a minute and pray, and then we're going to send everybody on your way. I want to ask you this week to pray this simple prayer with me that, well, if you don't know Jesus, invite him into your life today. But if you know Jesus, I want to ask you to ask him, pray with me and ask him, if you're open and are even seeking at this point about this, for him to begin to speak to you about where you need to reorganize your life around him and his mission. And let him be the one that speaks to you. Okay? Let him be the one. If you follow Jesus, he will speak to you. You don't have to figure it out. Just follow him. Just ask him. He'll speak to you. It's not a burden. It's simple. It's, it's liberating, even. But you're going to have to be willing to be open to that. And, and it's scary to put all the chips out on the table and say, okay, Jesus, here's my life is nice and somewhat organized. I'm willing to let you come in there and do whatever you want. He might only move one chip. You know, he might take the whole pile of chips and wipe it off the table and start over. But I just want to ask you, whatever it is, Jesus is, what the plan he has for you is better than what you have right now. It is. It's better than what I have. Because I have to continually do this. So just pray with me for a moment. In fact, let's do this. Uh, if, if you can kind of squeeze together, put your right hand on the shoulder of the person next to you. Let's do this all together. I know uh, we're trying to cut down on the transmission of Ebola. So <laughs> we're just going to put hands on shoulders. And... Uh, and if, and if you're really courageous, you can hold the hand of the person next to you. <laughs> I don't think any of us have traveled overseas lately. Uh, and let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, Jesus, you're, you're so much better and more wonderful and amazing than we know. And we, we want to be rid of the little conceptions we have of you and we ask you to speak to us just like you did, Peter, and show and tell in our lives uh, your wonderful will. Lord, show us where you want us to reorganize our life around you, following you and your mission. And I just pray this week that each day would, would be a, a gentle nudge, uh, a, a voice, uh, clarity would come from you to each of us, for each person that's here, Lord. And Jesus, thank you that you made it possible for, for us to come to our Father in heaven and be confident that he hears us and he will answer every prayer we pray, even if it's not the way we want it answered, that, that God will be good to us because of you. We thank you for that. And we stand on your promise that, that Jesus, you give us boldness to come into the Father's presence and that you'll do all of this that we've asked you today. And, and uh, we ask this in your name. Amen. All right. God bless you guys.